<laughs> I went to, all right, so I got oh, Rob. <laughs> usually Rob is uh let me just see something. So usually Rob helps me with all of this, and I'm trying to pull it off on my own. So Rob's telling me to ch- okay, so Rob's in the private chat. I see that. Um all right, so Rob's in the in the chat and stuff. All right, Cal uh Father Calvin Robinson. Hello. Been a long time coming, right? We've been yes. going back and forth for a long time. Um <laughs> And we finally were able to pull it off. Uh, before we even get going, everybody, please hit like, subscribe. Um, I'm not sure where this conversation is going to go. We may, if we start diving into sensitive topics, we may jump over to locals only. So we'll see how the conversation goes. But I figured just to start off, I've heard you on a whole bunch of different shows, but I've never really heard like your upbringing. Like, were you raised in uh, in the Anglican tradition? And I kind of want to know, uh, because I've kind of seen you evolve more towards a latin uh a latin uh version of christianity over the past year or two it seems i don't know so maybe i'm wrong on that so (laughs) what were you raised as and how has your faith kind of changed over the past few years uh i was raised in the church of england um before it went entirely woke of course it was still quite woke even then but um nominally christian growing up Parents are both Christians. Uh, grandparents are far more Christian than my parents. You know, it's that, it's that generational gap. Uh, but I came to know Christ through the Eucharist in a, a mass in an Anglican church. And that's very important for my faith journey because it tells me that Christ can, can reach us anywhere. And also it brings into question uh, certain certain politics of the church, right? But I came up through, through Anglicanism. I was an Anglo-Catholic. Um, you know, my the, my sending priest who sent me to seminary and my training, the people all around me have always been Anglo-Catholics as well until recently. Until, well, not recently now, but until I left the Church of England, which is, what, three years ago now. And then I was exposed to a whole wide world of evangelicals as well. Um, so Protestants, people of, of low church de- denominations, people who, who are also Anglicans but of the low church uh, prescription and, and just a broad range of Christians that I wouldn't have necessarily have engaged with if I was still in my Anglo-Catholic bubble of the Church of England. And yeah. so I think there's a bit of um, divine intervention at play there, exposing me to different uh, forms of Christianity or, or people with different traditions. But of course, also I've, I've been doing a lot of work with uh, with the Roman Church as well, or people in the Roman Church, um, which would have been probably a little bit more restrictive if I was still in the Church of England too. So I've just been... I think my path has led me on a journey to, I know ecumenism is a dirty word for you trads, but <laughs> just engaging with Christ's body in different ways. I, I think ecumenism, uh, okay, so let me, let me back up a little. About around how old were you when you had that experience with, with the Eucharist? Oh, I was in my early 20s, so this is my adulthood. Yeah, all, all throughout my life, I was... Um, searching for christ without knowing it yeah. sometimes explicitly searching but other times searching dot 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 uh but it was in my early 20s when i when i encountered him in the eucharist so when was it that you kind of took uh where you hit like the national stage where like what was the first thing that happened where people were like oh no this guy's a problem we have to take care of this <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think there have been different times uh when, before i got into ministry i was in education and I used to write about what I was seeing in education. I used to write about the left-wing indoctrination that is rabid in our schools, especially in our state schools over here. Um, and so I got into some trouble publicly for that. Um, but I think probably internationally, it was my Oxford Union speech that really raised the profile on what I was trying to say. But that was different. That was a very different time. You know, I started off speaking about education way before I uh, was had a public ministry. Yeah, we um, we were ma- we were making the joke before we even came on. We were like, we should pretend you're coming on to argue for reparations, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, for in honor of Martin Luther well, King Jr. Day. Today. <laughs> I, I did a debate. So before the Oxford debate, I did a, I did a Cambridge Union debate, very very similar. Um, format and everything and it was this house believes in reparations was it from the church or from the state anyway i was arguing against it obviously and uh that was very interesting completely different response to the oxford union debate in that the in the oxford union people were silent and hostile 
or mostly silent, but Arsenal was a very negative atmosphere. In Cambridge, they were physically agitated. You could see their demons being upset by the truth being spoken. Yeah. It, was, it was fascinating to see. Yeah, you don't fit inside of a mold, right? Like you, uh, right. man, it's, it, it, they want to put everybody into a box and they see you are a black guy and you're supposed to toe a certain line. And once you step outside of that, it's just, it's shocking to people that you We all do that, Anthony. All of us do. You know, we, we're supposed to fit into a Christ-shaped mold. But actually, we all want everyone else to fit into a mold that we recognize. You know, every day I get people tweeting me, come home, go to Rome. Like, yeah. okay, answer the question, why? What would you personally get from it? Or what do you think I would get from it? Or I get people saying, you know, avoid Babylon, the whore of Babylon, which is the Roman Catholic Church. And, and you know, <laughs> people all want me to fit into their little boxes. So even within the church, it's not just people in politics who say, oh, he's, you know, he's got brown skin, therefore he must be left wing and must uh, subscribe to critical race theory. All of us do it. We all want people to fit into our narrow little boxes that make the world make sense to us. Well, okay, so that that okay, so maybe we get into like because you coming up in the like you were ang you said you were like um like an Anglo Catholic, right? Yeah. So how has the Anglican Church changed over time? That it, because you weren't you didn't you weren't ordained in the Anglican Communion though, right? Like you wound up going outside of the Anglican Communion to get ordained, right? Yeah, yeah. So I got I got ordained by the old Catholics. Um, the Union of Scranton from the Utrecht line, which, I mean, it's neither here nor there, but essentially it's just, uh, it's, it's, as far as I know, it's the only group outside of Eastern Orthodox that are recognized by Rome. And that, for me, again, that ec ecumenical bridge is important of not just being uh, having a public ministry, but having a public ministry that is universally recognized is very helpful for the kind of work that I do. So do you think if it was uh, maybe a different, uh, papacy we were under that you would have chosen a different path or do you like it's it's really pe That's people that uh yeah because i uh, people that people that see you there i see that they do that to you they constantly coming down on you why aren't, why aren't you catholic why aren't you catholic but as an yeah. outsider i mean i try to see things from others point of view like if you had tried to get ordained in the catholic church you would not have been able to exercise the ministry you wanted like there's no way they would just I, because i speak to um uh, uh, Gavin Ashenden, yeah. and he tried to come in through the ordinary, and they yeah. just they wouldn't even allow it. So, do you think if it was uh, maybe under a Benedict papacy, you might have chose a different route? So, I get the first part of your point, and I had uh, coffee with Gavin the other day. He's a great man. Uh, it's a shame what the church has done to him, but I see that everywhere, especially in England. Um, they don't like prophecy. They don't like priests to be prophets. They don't like prophetic speaking they don't like people who stick their heads above the parapets they want people to keep their heads down the church is currently in england the church is currently uh burying its head in the in the sand in ostrich mode which is a massive shame because the church of england is imploding so the roman catholic church should be stepping forward to reclaim souls for christ however that's neither here nor there in, in to your second question no i don't think the, the papacy makes a difference because i can appreciate the papacy from um, a perspective of I'm an Englishman, I'm a monarchist. I, I I love the monarchy as a as a tr institution, as a as a tradition, a Christian tradition. I think it's important for our way of life over here. But I don't like King Charles the Third, so I can I can respect his seat, I can respect his office without liking him as a person. So I can completely see how people who are in full communion with Rome do not like Pope Francis because they see him for the monster that he is. However. They respect the the seat of Peter and the seat that he currently uh, occupies, if they believe that he occupies it. And this is the greatest shame of his papacy in that he is causing more division than we've seen in a long time. And I think actually it might end up in schism. Yeah, I do too. I I, th I don't think there's any other way that it can end because it's a sad thing because the 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 principal point of unity for Catholics is the papacy, and right now the papacy is causing the most division, but what you have is people that do have that respect for the papacy that you're talking about aren't leaving the church. But now if we get a Pope to the right of Francis, which I hate using even the left right paradigm, but that's kind of the, the dialectic where that has been foisted yeah. upon us over these past couple of years. But if we get somebody to the right of Francis, I think the people that are the biggest Francis supporters now will leave, mm. which is kind of what I think is going to happen. I think you're going to get, I think Francis is a one-off, and I think you're going to get uh, a 
you know, a, a better Pope for lack of a better term after him and that you're going to see a schism happen after that. But all of this is good, actually, because, you know, Christ uses bad situations for good. And this is quite a sanctifying process for the church, because I think for the for the last couple hundred years, the papacy has acquired more authority than it is due. And um, I fully recognize Primus into Paris. I fully recognize the Pope as the first among equals, among equals in the, in the bishops. And But situations like what happened with Strickland shouldn't be possible. Because Strickland's authority, as with all the bishops, comes directly from Christ. Mm. Uh, but the, the papacy has been made into a an all-encompassing um, authority in, in areas that the Pope doesn't have authority. He does have authority in some areas, but he, he's taken authority in areas that he doesn't have it. And that's not his, that's not Francis's fault. That's what's being that's authority that's been granted because there have been a few good popes and people have been looking to the Pope for leadership in areas that they don't necessarily need to, because the church is bigger than just the Pope. You know, the magisterium is there for a purpose. But anyway, that's that's all all church politics. But to answer the question about me personally, I I pray and discern through everything, and and both the Lord and Our Lady have led me to the path that I'm on. And I never I didn't choose it. I never would have expected it. I didn't know this path was a possibility. But I'm here at the behest of Him, and um, so when when individuals. Well, I mean, I'm all up for challenge, but when individuals challenge it from their personal perspective, I always flip it back around and say, as I said, to to what to what end? You know, other than getting a trophy, say, oh yes, we got Calvary on our side now. Other than that trophy hunting yeah. that a lot of Roman Catholics do, to what end? Other than perhaps, like you suggested, silencing my ministry. Well, I would I would say the only reason to it's not, I, I, it should never be trophy hunting, and I don't think anybody should become anything unless they believe it's true, right? Like I, it's not if so if you don't believe something is true, what's the point in doing it? So when people ask me why I'm Catholic, it's because I believe it's true. So that, because I heard you on with I think it's that kid Redeem Zoomer, and he was oh, yeah. talking about church unity, and you were like, well, the only possible path I could see for unity would be under Rome. I, so right. it, it it was a comment that you had made that made you know that that kind of yeah. Don't me. get me wrong, I do see Catholicism as true, but I also mm. see Orthodoxy as true, and I don't think the truth can be con- contained because I think the ch- we, God institute Christ instituted one church, right? And, but the ch- we have divided the church. We have divided his body and we pray every, every week in, in the intercessions in church for church unity. All of us do in no matter our denomination. Um, but that church has to come together. And yes, truth is in the, in the Roman Catholic church. Yes. Truth is in the Eastern Orthodox churches, but all of that truth needs to be united. Um, I don't think anyone has an explicit, um, kind of chokehold on the truth because Jesus Christ is the truth, and we again we can't put him into our little boxes. Um, so that's not to suggest that one thing is more true than the other, or or neither of them are true, but just that we have to find a way to be able to see that truth in order to reunite it because it's our job to reunite his body. Yeah, I see. Uh, I you have to put Catholicism and Orthodoxy in a different place, and you would put the different Protestant denominations. There's, I mean, especially oh, once you when you start getting rid of sacraments, like a, a non-sacramental Protestantism is a drastically different faith and religion from you know ancient ancient Christianity. So, did you always have um, a devotion to Our Lady, or is that kind of a newer thing? Oh yeah, always. I've been on pilgrimage to Walsing every year. Um, but in, in, in to your points of uh, Protestant denominations, yes, I think the further away you get from the truth, the less truth you maintain, right? So that's not to say that, you know, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that Christ is present in these, uh, what do they call them, ecclesial bodies, right? But but not wholly present. And of course, yeah. so some of these denominations do have some of Christ. They have some of the truth, but not all of him. And so that's, again, another thing to pray for. But you're absolutely spot in, on in that the moment you remove the sacraments, you're removing him really and presently. So that is when it becomes an, a much bigger issue. But you know, Anglicanism is is uh, a weird gray area because where, like I say, where I came from in Anglican Catholicism, we had the sacraments, we had apostolic succession. Again, we can get into political decisions about whether that's valid or not. Um, but the, the intention and the form, if they are there, and if Christ is present there too then, you know, it's all about how can we see this from a wider, broader perspective, I think, without watering anything down. And, and the only way yeah, to do think, that is to pray through it. I think a lot of people, um, like, watching you over the past couple of years, of, 
I don't look at it like Catholics are looking for you as a trophy. It's that you're a voice of reason in the chaos. And, and of course people want you to be on their team. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, and for, and for Catholics, look, especially, um, there's, there's a, 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 how would I say this? It's, it's, it's almost like if, if Catholics admit that there's, um, other, other Christian religions, or oh man, I don't even know how I would say that. It's just, they, they want every, they want the church to be one. Let's just say that. You're right. So they want the church to be one. So when you're looking even at orthodoxy, I mean, if, if you look, even the church teaches that the Orthodox have valid apostolic succession, they have valid mm-hmm. sacraments. There should be a different conversation between us and the Orthodox or Absolutely. even us and like someone like you than I would with a, a Protestant, an, especially so much of Protestantism, Protestantism today is like an American brand of Protestantism. It's like this hundred year old thing where it's rock music and mm. a strange you know, a strange thing. So, all right. So now when, what did, what was the whole debacle you dealt with on, what did you work with GB news? I did. Yes. Yes. And what was the whole debacle with Lawrence Fox? Cause I kind of saw that from a distance. I didn't know what was going on there. Did you, they let you go and. Um, Lawrence said something he shouldn't have. He got fired because of it. The presenter whose show he was on got suspended is still suspended three months later. And I spoke up and said, you can't call yourself the home of free speech and then fire people for saying things that are distasteful, but not breaking any guidelines and perfectly legal. And then they let you go too. And they fired me because of that. <laughs> just for defending him. Oh yeah. Yeah. Just for having loyalty, not just to my friends, but also to the principles that the station that I worked for said it uh, subscribed to. But for, I mean, for me, there's a, there's a Christian angle to that in that if, so, if someone said something that is offensive, yet perfectly legal, if, if you're saying it's immoral, you have to ask the question, immoral based on what? Yeah. Based on what values, right? It's all abstract. They're plucking stuff out there. It's, it was actually based on feminism. It wasn't based on Christian morality. But even if it was, you offer someone the opportunity to repent, to show contrition, to be forgiven, and you get, forgive them. Uh, you don't just snatch them away and uh, and cancel them. Otherwise, we are just as bad as the enemy. That's the irony of this new new religion that's coming up, right? It's it's a, it's a mockery of Christianity and that it, it demands uh, like a scapegoat, a villain, but it doesn't mm-hmm. offer any kind of repentance and welcoming back into the fold. It's, it's what's so scary yeah. about it. Now in, in England, I see you constantly posting about just how worrisome it is that we're just allowing. Uh, okay. So uh, let me back up a little. I'm, I'm watching this documentary uh, on New York it's a mm-hmm. 10-part series, two hours each episode. And so many of these episodes are based on the richness of the cultural inheritance of all the immigrants coming into New York, right? So in the early 20th century, you have Europeans coming into New York. You have you have the Irish, you have the Italians, you have the Germans. They're all flooding into New York, and it makes New York almost like a European city. Mm-hmm. So the whole documentary is kind of trying to prepare you as if the, the immigration that's happening now is the same thing. When you have Europeans coming into America, you're bringing Christians into America. So even though there might be cultural differences in how Italians and the Irish live, yeah. we we all believe the same core principles and the same God. Yeah. But when you start bringing in I- Islam and things like that, there's going to be a culture crash that happens. And I'm watching it happen in Europe and I'm watching it happen in America. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's terrible here. We've got open borders, essentially, and we've got a liberal mindset that teaches that it's a good thing to have open borders. And, and because we've heard for the last almost 60 years now that if you are against open borders, you're a racist or you're a xenophobe or something like that. Or even from Christians, it's like, you know, do you not want to love your neighbor? Do you not care about the sojourner? And it's like, well, first of all, you do know that that means traveler, and that's that's someone who is temporary. It doesn't mean someone who is permanent. But also, of course, we cannot help our neighbors if we don't help ourselves. And we don't have neighbors if we don't have borders. If Then we're all just one. And nations and tribes are God-ordained, and so our borders are important. But also, look at the history of the church. Look at the way God revealed himself to us through the individual, through the family, through the nation, and then wider abroad. Like, you have to follow the same path. We have to look after the individual, the family, the nation, and then wider abroad. Um, 
all of this is common sense, or it was common sense. And now we've got a point where, you know, most of our politicians, most of our civil servants, they are bleeding heart liberals, and they think, they genuinely think they're doing good by opening yeah. the borders. And first and foremost, there's no discernment there. So I would, if you know, if I was a politician, I'd say, okay, look, of course it's good to help refugees, people in war zones and, and being living under persecution. But firstly, let's if we're going to take refugees into our country, let's take refugees from Christian countries like or, or Christians that are being persecuted, like in southern Sudan or northern Nigeria or Armenia, you know, who share our faith and share our values. But instead we're taking on board hordes of Mohammedans, essentially, who do not share our values, do not share our culture, and in fact hate us, hate our values, hate our culture, hate our way of life, Yes, and want to, in effect, conquer us, because that's what their faith teaches them. And we're taking them on board. We are literally inviting the barbarians through the gate. The gate is wide open. They're no longer at the gate. And we're, we're, we're coming about our own demise. Well, you said something interesting there, because you said they're doing it for, because they, their heart is in the right place, right? Like you think that this is a, so I have a hard time believing that um, I, because of what I see with the, the man, especially in America with this, with the, with the Southern border open right now. Like I really don't worry about Mexican or South American immigrants coming in who are Catholic. It does not worry me. Mm-hmm. What I worry about is the Muslims coming in because I do think there's a culture clash coming, but I feel like they are doing it intentionally. I feel like, I think that the biggest obstacle in the way of this globalist uh, agenda is probably the American constitution, the American constitution, the idea that it allows free speech, the, um, the fact that it allows us to have a second amendment. I think that is the biggest obstacle to them enforcing this globalist agenda. And I think they are purposely trying to destroy this country so that they can just do away with the constitution. It really worries me because there's no other explanation for just allowing millions of people to flood into. I mean, every, even democratic uh, governors and mayors who are supposed to be on the same page as them are complaining and saying, we can't handle this anymore. And they're still keeping it coming in. Yeah, there's, there's two sets of people. So the, when I say they're bleeding heart liberals, I'm talking about the politicians and the civil servants. But above them is the, the Machiavellian um, globalists who do want to there – there is a replacement in practice. There is – because in the West, we are not breeding, to put it quite crudely. Yeah. We're not ha- having fam- – we're not starting families. We're not having babies. You know, in England, I think the average um, birth rate is 1.4. So it used to be 2.4. So at least the father and the mother would replace themselves. Now it's not even that. It's half that. Um, and so – they're worried about the GDP because they, they worship mammon. And so they have to replace native Westerners with people who breed more rapidly and are more controllable in a different way. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's verboten to even speak about replacement, right? <laughs> like you get in trouble for acting like, but it's something that's actually happening because you see guys like Elon Musk talking about uh, the, the replacement rate or just the, the, the fertility rate. If you're not at least replacing it, you're looking at a demographic cliff mm. that's coming up. And you see something like that happening in Japan where they don't have enough children to replace the older people. And in a place like America where you have things like Social Security set up, if they don't have a, you know, a fertility rate that can replace that, your whole economy will collapse. So you think, you think that's part of it, that they just want to make sure they have a replacement rate? And it's not that they actually want to replace the culture? Because I think that they just hate christianity so much that they are willing to align themselves with anyone who is again i mean you see look at look at liberals i mean you see things like queers for palestine are these people Mm. insane yeah that's just stupid but i don't know if if it's they that hate christianity but i think a lot of this is the work of the enemy who of course hates christianity and if you are trying to have a war with god what do you do you destroy the things that help people believe in God. So the family, the nation, the church, wider society, all centered around Christ. We call it Christendom. Some people call it Western civilization. You destroy those things, don't you? And they're what that's what they're doing. They've broken down the family. It's no longer a husband and a wife. It's two husbands or two wives. You you stop having children and then you you promote surrogacy, you know, child uh blooming um what's the word? What's the word for uh 
can't, can't think of it off the top of my head. But anyway, and you promote mass abortion in certain communities. You just promote everything that is opposite what is good, but you paint it as good. And that's how the enemy works. It's funny because we all talk about the nuclear family, and it really goes back further than that because it really used to be you would have the grandparents, the great-grandparents, the parents, the cousins, and you would all live. The parish community would be the center. So you'd have the church as the, as the center. You'd have all your cousins and family all around. And then the it, it really, you, you think about how much technology changes things because the mm. automobile changes that, right? So now people are able to go live a half an hour away and it yeah. leads to the suburbs being built. And now we get this term, the, the nuclear family. But the, the nuclear family is a very new thing. It used to just be the family and you would have yeah. a much wider thing. So even the idea of a nuclear family is the beginning of the falling apart of it. Mm. Yeah, when do you, fun. when do you think, because we talk about uh, the West and, and Christendom and things like that. So if you, if you look back in the early church, the early church, as it's going, they had this notion that it was going to be, uh, Christendom was a real thing. So the, the idea of Christendom was there was going to be one empire that covered the earth. So it was really the idea of one church, one empire, because you have all these pagan mm. nations that are out there. And as Christianity spreads, they incorporate them in. But what winds up happening instead of there being one empire is you get subsidiarity. So you'll have the nation of you know England, you'll have the, the, the countries of Italy, and they're all individual uh, nations, but they all still have, uh, you know, the, the Christian faith, the Catholic faith. Mm. Do you think, like, what's your view on the Reformation and its effects on where we are today? Do you think the Reformation was uh, a net positive or a net negative? Do you think it's kind of led to some of the things we're in today? No, I don't, I don't see the relation between the two. I don't think the Reformation was a net positive. I don't think it reformed the church. I think it's, it split the church even further, and that's never a good thing. Um, I, I think the church does need to reform constantly needs to reform and uh, there needs to be introspection to avoid error and heresy. Um, of course, the gates of hell will never prevail against the church, but that doesn't mean the church can't fall into problems as we've seen many, many times over the centuries. Um, but I think where the reformers went wrong is that uh, they ended up have either leaving or being forced out of the church. So the impact wasn't made that could have been made and that the church doubled down um, with the Counter-Reformation and the Council of Trent and all of this stuff just really forced Christians apart. And then instead of having one universal church or even two by that point, we ended up with we've got hundreds of churches now. In fact, people make new churches up every day. Uh, I'm constantly getting people in my mentions saying, I don't need a church. I've got, all, I've got uh, the Bible. I can. That's all I need. I've got Christ, just me and my personal relationship or, or things along those lines, which of course we know to be untrue. It's um, it's the spiritual but not religious, right? <laughs> but even Christians, you know, people think they can interpret the scriptures by themselves, and of course, you're going to fall into error and heresy that way because you you need the church because that's how we we the Bible is the ultimate authority, but we interpret it through the church. We can't do it by ourselves; otherwise, we're making idols of ourselves. But yes, uh, so I think the the, the uh, Reformation did a great evil on the on the church, but I don't think that's had the same impact on society. Um, we still see lots of Christian countries pre and post. So I think it's more. Yeah, I, I kind of think that the the spirit of revolution that comes out of the Reformation then goes into. I mean, they, they then it comes to ripping down every monarchy because once you once you throw off the the authority of the Pope, now you want to get rid of all the monarchies, and it puts the spirit of yeah. revolution into the air, and that leads to the American Revolution, then the French Revolution, and it really yeah. gets rid of. I, I'm England's like the last one who was able to keep the monarchy intact without a revolution. I'm 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 surprised they were able to do that with the spirit of revolution that was in the air at the time. Yeah, perhaps. Someone's saying you don't have liberalism without Protestantism. I'd say it's the other way around. I'd say you don't have Protestantism without liberalism. Liberalism makes everything about the individual, and and freedom is all about your own personal identity, whereas obviously Christianity is all about submission to God, and that's where we get our freedom. So from liberalism, we get Protestantism, not the other way around. Um, for Lily W., I hate those comments. Literally hate them. They're so annoying. For your information, Pope Leo declared that Anglican orders are... You think I've never heard that before? Like, 
the, the thing that I really gets on my nerves is when people paste the most obvious things that everyone knows and think that somehow they're enlightening you. Yes, I'm very much aware of that. This is why we brought it up in the conversation. Um, my point was that if you've got to look into why Pope Leo XIII declared Anglican orders uh, null and valid, and then and then you'll see that actually he said the form and the matter and the intention have to be valid. Uh, so the intent has to be there for the real presence. The form has to be there for the sacrifice of the mass. If they are there, that makes it a valid mass. And he looked at um, Anglican uh, liturgy at the time and said, "Actually, I don't think the I don't think the form is there." But I, I would say that that was a mistake because if you look at the form of the Book of Common Prayer that he was looking at at the time, and then look at the form of like what the liturgy of Gregory the Great was using, you'll see almost identical form. So if you if you are to say that Anglican form was incorrect, you would say actually. Therefore, the whole of the Roman Catholic Church doesn't have apostolic succession. This is it's an argument that I think has been debunked, but I think people who just quote these things without looking any into any depth don't really have an argument other than just wasting my time. Yeah, that's a that's a it's a hard position you're in, right? Well, first off, people are going to say to me that I'm not challenging you enough because that's what they're oh, going to say. But, <laughs> well, no, it's so I would uh, okay, so. What makes you uh, decide to go the the route you went then? Because I think we touched on it a little bit before, but um, it was it simply just because you think they were the only ones that were going to be able to so, uh, let you exercise your ministry? Or I'll get to that, but here's another one. Look, here's another one. Mata Dolorosa says Robinson's not a real priest. Now, this is what I mean about Roman Catholics entering schism without realizing it, because Mata Dolorosa, I'm assuming she's a Roman Catholic, by the uh, Ave Maria in her icon. Now, the church... The Catholic Church say recognizes my orders as valid and my sacraments as valid, recognizes me as a legitimate priest. Therefore, if she doesn't, she is not following the teachings of the church. This is what I mean when people don't think, they just say things. And it's like, yeah, you could you could what say you're doing is you're causing division. You're not helping bring the body of Christ together. You could argue, I mean, for, for she could argue that you are in schism from the church, but not that your yes. orders are invalid. Your, Absolutely. your orders are valid. So I would say your orders are more valid than even maybe the Anglican uh, orders would be valid because right. you went the route you went. From your perspective, yeah. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say that Anglican orders are invalid, but then I don't have to recognize the authority of the Pope. And you do, therefore you have to see Anglican orders as invalid because the Pope declared them null and void. But my point is that it's important to know the reasons that he did that rather than just to state, oh, someone told me once that that's null and void. But yes, I, I do agree that from a Roman Catholic perspective, my orders are more valid uh, than Anglican orders just because they have the same legitimacy as Eastern Orthodox orders, which are clearly recognized. But schism and, is, and they come right. They come down from a valid apostolic succession. What what liturgy do you actually celebrate? Do you use the sixty two missal? Do you use the Anglican ordinary? Like what what <laughs> liturgy do you celebrate? Um, at the moment, I use ordinary use because ordinary I think it's use. I think it's the most reverential uh, liturgy outside of the Latin Mass. Okay, uh, I think it's far more reverential than the Novus Ordo. I think it, actually, if you look at the ordinary use, it pretty much is the Sarum Rite, but in English, right? So it's essentially what ha it's essentially the Latin Mass, but in English. And I think that's what the Novus Ordo should have been. That's what Vatican II should have been. It should have, if you want to take the Vulgate and turn it into the vernacular, you don't take bits out of it. You just translate it, right? And you keep it in its yeah. fullness. That's the great mistake of the liturgical reforms of the 60s to me. And that's how I think that we know that the enemy was involved in those reforms because it was it stripped apart important parts. Yeah, if I was elected pope in this hypothetical world, my what I would do is I would make every priest return to the sixty-two missile in English, so they could right. use the vul, you know, they could use the common language, but they'd have to do it in uh, go back to the original missile. I mean, it really goes way back. Well, there you have it. Just make the ordinary use uh, um, an extraordinary form, or even make that the ordinary form and keep the Latin mass as a, an extraordinary form. You know, yeah. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You've got it. Yeah, I think that you, man, you think about what they did in the in the 60s with uh, changing the liturgy like that, and it, it just really ripped the foundation out from people. I think so. I think to, to sit there and say that it was just cultural things that ha that caused the falling away of the faithful from Catholicism without without discussing what they did in the liturgical reforms is just naivete. You know, it's like it's crazy. It had absolutely a lot to do with that. Yeah. Um, so let's see. Okay. So I would argue against your point. All right. So I would say that pr 
I think what I got to go back to uh traditional Thomas comment because you said, uh, what is it? okay, so you said it was liberalism that caused Protestantism, mm. right? So I guess, so I guess there is a, a way, I guess that you would have that spirit already exists and that's what causes the reformation, right? Like that There's liberal. This, um, Father Felix Salvani is good on this in his book, Liberalism is Sin. Highly recommend it. Um, just that once you start nipping at bits of the truth, you end up focusing on the individual and then it leads to liberalism, whether, whether we've defined liberalism by that point or not. What do you think? Uh, what do you think the future of the Anglican Communion looks like? Because it's really getting pretty crazy over there, right? Like, I mean, I mean, once you introduce a female priesthood, once you start talking about allowing, man, do you, like what what happens to that? Like, because what you you had mentioned earlier, like ecumenism is a dirty word for trads, right? But ecumenism, in its proper sense, should always be about bringing people back into the one fold of christ and Absolutely. not just not just uh the conversation for the sake of con not dialogue for the sake of dialogue right it should be yeah. always about bringing people back towards the truth so where do you think the, tr the the church of england goes from here yeah i think that's that's right it should the dialogue should be about bringing people back in and i think you know we touched on this earlier and, and i said that i think the future of the church Actually, I don't think it will look how we think it will look. I don't think it will just be, for example, Eastern Orthodox folding into Roman Catholicism and then everyone's part of one church. I think the, the future of the church will look something different to what we suspect because God has a bigger perspective than we have. And somehow the East and the West will be re reunited. That will be the one true church again as one body, not split. And I think as a result of that, all of the protestant denominations will just fall away they are falling away you know the more you splinter the more you split it continues and continues until it's nothingness and that happens and happens everywhere um you know anglicanism became methodism methodism Pro and baptism and and, and non-denominational and it just goes on and on and on until it just disappears so i don't think that's too much of an issue anglicanism in general is bigger than than all the others um it, so there's a possibility that it, Anglicanism could eventually fall back in with Orthodoxy and Catholicism as well. Uh, but I don't think the Church of England is a part of that. The Church of England has gone too far, and I don't think it will survive past my lifetime, to be honest with you. Uh, but the Anglican communion in general is much bigger. You know, there are 85 million Anglicans around the world, uh, most of whom are Orthodox in their faith. Well, you look at, you look at what happens with the uh, Anglican split and king henry the eighth makes himself supreme head of the church but when you have king charles in there now i mean how can he be the supreme head of the church when like he i, I no, he's not he's him. not i've got a, i've got a challenge on that he's not the head of the church like the king's never been the head of the church the king's just the supreme governor uh but that's that was pretty much how the catholic church worked uh, you know, most of the kings throughout Europe were the ones who selected their bishops. It, it was never actually the Pope who selected the bishops. That's that's a relatively recent uh, papal authority. Um, all that happened is that the the Anglicans split from papal authority all entirely. So that didn't it didn't put the king as a new pope. He doesn't have any power or authority over the church. Uh, but he we separated, and that's that was. The, you know, of course, that was a great shame, but that left the country without a relationship with Rome, uh, but it didn't put anyone else in, in the Pope's place. Yeah, it's just, I'm, yeah, I'm just, I'm looking at it like the, just the trajectory of, I mean, look, it's, it's, you're, you're seeing it within Catholicism too. You're seeing, we're, we're supposed to be standing against this thing that's that's approaching all of us, right? I mean, this yeah. is why people actually do love hearing you talk, because you were courageous enough to have to, to have a voice and stand up in public risk being uh you know basically the the, the idea of uh excommunicated from society to speak the truth where we have in in catholicism you're you're having the, the hierarchy starting to flirt with bringing these ideas into the church in some way now th like this last document fiducia supplicans yeah okay fine the church 
clearly restated what marriage is, but the idea that they're giving this impression that the church is softening its stance to some of these things when the church is supposed to be the thing that speaks the most clearly on it is itself very problematic. And you're, and you're seeing it throughout the entire world where it's throughout the West. This is is the West. It's a Western church problem. And, you know, these Pope explainers who say, well, the doctrine hasn't changed actually are, I think they're Pharisees because they're legalistic and they're looking at the doctrine as a as a document. Actually, Catholics have always believed lex orendi, lex credendi, right? That we we believe what we preach and what we practice and what we pray. That is the doctrine. If we if we practice something, if you go to Father James Martin as a couple of gay guys and get blessed together on which looks like a gay marriage, essentially, doctrine has changed. Yeah. There and then. Yeah, in practice. Yes, in practice. That's how it works. And then it, it, that continues until everyone does it. And then before you know it, a hundred years later. What has always been, it's always been done. So therefore the doctrine has changed. We don't need a papal encyclical to change doctrine. Um, so the Pope's blainers are wrong on that. But the Western yeah. church as a whole is falling. And it's great shame to see that Rome is copying what the Anglicans are doing in this regard of, of following the world instead of leading the world. You saw today, Francis said, uh, it is, this is not dogma, but it is my personal belief that or he said something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. I, I know he's the Holy Father and I'm not supposed to, you know, but he said something along the lines of, it is my personal belief that hell is empty. I like to believe this. And it's like, you're the Pope and you're giving people the impression that hell is empty. But that kind of puts in perspective every single thing he has done throughout his papacy, right? So if he believes hell is empty, now that means he doesn't believe mortal sin separates you from God. And he doesn't think that, anything it is i mean he doesn't believe in mortal sin essentially so of course he's trying to incorporate and it's just don't worry about what people do let's just his idea of um being pastoral Mm. what does a pastor do if not lead someone to christ and away from these sinful lifestyles it's absurd it's fluffy it's very fluffy i've seen the pope's plane to say well actually no he's not saying that hell is empty he's saying he wants hell to be empty and of course we all want hell to be empty yes of course we should but at the same time as a preacher, as a pastor, as a priest, as a bishop, as a pope, we should be teaching that hellfire is real. And you are at risk of eternal damnation unless you live your life a certain way. Unless you have faith in Christ, you receive the sacraments, and you repent of your sins, eternal damnation is a very real possibility, and you will be judged upon your death. Therefore, Repent of your sins, have faith in Christ, and receive the sacraments. That's what he should be saying. Not actually, I, I think I like to think hell is empty, and it's so it's just fluffy. But it's it's risking souls. It's just not going to convert anyone. No. I mean, you really have to think, especially men, right? You see the Christ. We talk constantly about the crisis of masculinity because what is the church saying to make men want to change their lives and live? Because we really are called to live radically different if you become Christian. And yeah. the church is just silent on this, and they're just constantly trying to feminize it and bring more women into it. And when you yes. do that, you actually repel men from wanting to even have a part in it. But not just that, and I'll get to that. I just want to say th- thank you to f- uh, Doris Front Desk for, for a nice comment, because I, I just keep seeing this Lily W who gets on my nerves. She's putting lots of nonsense. I'm not going to even address them anymore. But I, I wouldn't even acknowledge it. Yeah, I want to call it a nice one. Doris Front Desk, very nice. Um, the po- problem is femininity of the church, absolutely. And it goes back to – it's incarnational. Men and women are different. We've always known that to be true. And that's not to say we're not equal in, in terms of dignity and worth, but we, we are different in our roles, in our callings. And men tend to be, this is a generalization, but we live in a generalized world, men tend to be more rigid with their theology. Women tend to be more emotionally flexible. So the moment you introduce femininity into the church, and we've seen this in, in the Anglican church as an example, you get women wanting to liberalize the faith in order to be more all-encompassing, to be more inclusive. And of course, we shouldn't talk about the horrible stuff because we want these com- people to come in and feel warm and fuzzy. And it's like, no, the church has to be mas- masculine in, in order to prevent error, to prevent heresy, to keep the truth static, and to lead people to it, to him. Well, this is the biggest problem with why uh, you can't have Men with same-sex attraction be priests. Hey, Chris Tomlinson. <laughs> How you doing, Chris? Sorry. <laughs> um, I think this is the biggest issue with uh, having men with same-sex attraction become priests, right? Because they, they, if you if you have that attraction, there's obviously a, a father wound there. 
and you have an issue with masculinity in itself. Yes. Yes. So how can you be a spiritual father when you yes. have that deep wound in yourself? And now what happens is you have, a, because what really happens in the church, in my opinion, I mean, this is obviously just speculation, but it seemed like once you get a f- men in positions of authority with that inclination, they start pulling up other men with that inclination. Oh, yeah. And all of a sudden you have an entire church. It's almost like a, a club of like a men church. with that inclin. Yeah. It's yeah. like, a, a, and now you have women being brought in and now you just have this feminized church where, like you said, it's just all about inclusivity. Don't say anything that's difficult. Don't talk about the, 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 the hard part of being Christian. Don't talk about, contraception don't talk about uh pornography don't talk about any of that let's just not offend anybody don't worry about it and then you wind up getting this milk toast mediocre version of christianity that converts no one and that's what's left so many christians converting to islam because at least i mean you look at a guy like andrew tate right andrew tate converts because he says it's more difficult like and men want to be challenged yeah, I see Baratus in the chat as well. Hey, Chris, I love your work. Um, <laughs> the, the truth is offensive, Anthony. This is it. We can't try to not be offensive because the truth is offensive. Um, the, 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 the gospel is scandalous. It, that's the whole point of it. It's supposed to wake us up to the truth, who is Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say something that's going to upset the trads again, but I'm not doing it to upset the trads. I'm doing it because I think this is the truth. The reason the church is so gay right now and so effeminate right now is because of a tradition that needs to be addressed. Um, so in the church, if we look at the church fathers, they used to talk about, you know, a priest should be chased the night before celebrating mass. Uh, the priests used to be married. In, in many traditions in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they still are. And I know there are married permanent deacons now in the church, but it's a, it's, I think it's a tradition that needs to be addressed in the Roman Catholic Church, the, the uh, chastity of priests, because people are called to many vocations in life. And a lot of people feel called to holy orders. And then they have to weigh up that calling against their calling to start a family. And people often drop out in discernment at seminary and actually go and choose to start a family instead of being involved in a gay church. And then you have, on the other hand, you have people who don't feel called to start a family, who get who feel um the, the tug of same-sex attraction. So they don't have that dilemma. So, And then if they feel that they are called to holy orders, they go to holy orders. So people who are gay end up becoming priests. People who are straight end up starting families. Yeah. I think that's a very troubling So, so you think we? Sh- you think that the Catholic Church should open itself up to a married priesthood? Yes, I think it should return to the tradition of the church, which is Catholicism is about protecting tradition, right? And uh, at some point that tradition was changed and it's been changed for so long now that trads see it as the way that things have always been done. But it's not, of course, the way things have always been done. And I think it was dam- it has been damaging for the church. We have a gay church. Well, okay. So I think all all right, the way so up to the top. This, this is a good topic that we could ju- jump in on. So, okay. <laughs> I think that uh, at one point in time, uh, in, especially in history, when it was so unacceptable to have you know same-sex relationships, I think that you had a lot of men who had that inclination would go to the priesthood to avoid this, you know, the scandal of why aren't you married? Why aren't you the, you know, so they would go maybe into that vocation to hide some of these inclinations. Now that constant, that obviously would have disastrous consequences. You're in the confessional with young men, things like that. Um, But I think that there could be an avenue for, uh, a married priesthood like I, I don't think it should be a universal thing though right, I think right. there, I, I think there could be um maybe an avenue for it because I do think that um it it might give an opportunity for some married men who actually believe the orthodox faith but I still think because you have those priests and uh bishops in positions of authority they wouldn't allow those men up Anyway, like I think that's a major problem you would have. It would make priests more effeminate if they spoke up. They could get canceled and lose their benefits for them and their family, which is a true point too, right? So, part of the that's, reason that's true, regardless, because if you speak up as a priest, you lose. You know, you get sent off to the uh, Timbuktu, or you lose your stipends and you lose your house, or you lose your nice. Right, but that now if you have change. a family that you're responsible for too, so the, part of the reason for the celibate priesthood is, especially if you look in times of like uh, a time of war or a time of persecution, the priest can go and put himself in harm's way without worrying about abandoning his family. And I, I mean, you as a priest, you have to know 
more than we would how demanding the role of a of a priest is right. You're getting called out in the middle of the night to go and give extreme unction. You're, yeah, but you at know, the same time, I know many married priests in the ordinary who manage it very successfully. I think callings aren't universal. So people who are called to missions in dangerous parts of Africa might not be pr- the same priests that are called to a married life in a parish in a humble, you know, suburb. Uh, so I think again, you're right in that it shouldn't be universal, but I don't think I don't think it should be prohibited. Yeah, I think so even just, again, I knew that would be an unpopular opinion with the. No, with the I don't. I don't. Honestly, it's a it's a conversation I actually like having because I've explored it before. Where it's there's, I, I don't. Well, we already allow for married priests in the Catholic Church if they come in from through the ordinariate or something, right, or something like that. Like there are yeah. slight exceptions to married priests in in the in the Catholic church so all the comments of people saying you can't serve two masters you'll be distracted by a family blah, blah blah are they saying that priests who have come in through the ordinary are lesser priests than celibate priests i don't know um i think that the the church's tradition would have been that even when married men became priests they would they especially early on maybe they're i think i've heard that like even when benedict was allowing for this he talked about how uh uh, spouses would agree to be chaste, you know, and not and not be together, even if they were married or whatever. Like they would actually agree to no longer uh, share the marital bed once the once the husband became a priest, things like that. I attend an ordinary, and we have one of the greatest priests I've ever encountered in my time as a Catholic. Is he married, uh, Chris? And he's married. Yeah, he's married. Yeah, look, you you look at Father Dwight Longnecker. He's married. He has a bunch of kids. I mean, P, the. The other thing would be, would they have to uh, receive a higher pay? Because now they, I mean, if they're not practicing contraception, they're going to have eight, nine kids, things like that, you know? But yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not someone who thinks right off the bat, there should be absolutely no exceptions for it. I think there can be. And I think that there's a possibility that you'd wind up getting a bunch of Orthodox married men proclaiming the truth. And maybe that's a way to restore the church. Uh, Pope Benedict spoke in that 1970 radio address about the church in the future will lose a lot of its uh, public, um, like its public, adoration and it would become a smaller church but it would become a church of saints a, you know a, a church that is much more holy and men that would be priests would be men with day jobs and things like that because they mm. wouldn't be this ability to have seminaries and things like that yeah. so that could be the future of the church we really don't know yeah. i know many priests who've got day jobs i know many priests who are married and they're, they're very good priests I, I just want to see more of that i want to see more masculine priests when i look at uh fs and, and uh tucho i just see gayness infecting the church in a very negative way and uh anything we can do to help prevent that i'm not saying it's going to solve it but anything we can help to see more masculinity in the priesthood would be a good thing yeah i agree with that i mean i don't i you know that i think there, there should be a channel maybe made for it i just worry that if they give that uh, ability that it would just become the norm that's the problem with all this stuff right like so they make an exception for communion in the hand and next thing you know, communion in the hand is the norm. And that's the yeah. danger of it. If you allow this little avenue for something like that to happen, then it just becomes the norm and that's it. You have and now the celibate priest that is gone. Because even the Orthodox don't allow their bishops to be married, right? Um yes, yeah, that's right. I think, yeah. I think it's expected that if you're married as a priest, you oh, I can't I can't remember the ins and outs. I don't want to quote something and yeah. get get it wrong. Yeah. <sighs> Goodness me, I love the comments in your... <laughs> you want to just play around with the comments a little? Protestant. We can go with this. How would, how would getting married make you a Protestant? Being Protestant would mean you're against the Catholic Church and or don't have the sacraments. Be, getting married, that doesn't necessarily... Anyway, some of these people are unthinking. Control your urges. Yes, yes. That's, John B., married that's Catholic cool. priests would just be Protestant? No, that's, that's, that's not true. I mean, you, <laughs> that's not true. Uh but celibacy, I do think, is masculine. Oh, celibacy um, is a very good thing. Yes, I'm not I saying think, celibacy is there, not a good thing. It is masculine because it's it, it, when done properly, you're controlling your passions, and they're actually the true romantics. Because what you're look, I'll, I'll tell you why celibacy, especially in the modern age, is mm-hmm. very important. We're dealing with a culture that says if you can't sleep with who you want to sleep with, you can't be happy. Yeah. Okay. And a celibate priesthood shows you don't need to have sex to be happy. 
you can actually experience all the joys and glories that God has to offer you as a person without sex being uh, a, a prerequisite. And that's what really, I mean, that's how I always viewed the celibate priesthood, especially in our modern age where everybody's telling you love is love and go sleep with who you want to sleep with. Oh, yeah, yeah. What, you know, so the, the celibate priesthood is actually the one saying, no, I'm going to forego this natural good for something that's eternal and beautiful. Yeah, no, it's, that's a, diff a slightly different conversation. I'm with you on that. Celibacy is important and very good. And St. Paul talks quite a lot on this in that marriage is there for those who can't be celibate, but celibacy is a, is a holy path. I think he's right. But I also think we live in an age where Christians, well, need both. We need, we need yeah. to remind Christians that there are two callings. One is celibacy and, and one is family. But promiscuity is not a Christian lifestyle. And the world will tell everyone that it is. And yeah, you're right. In, in order to be happy, but it's not just about being happy. It's just in order to be ordinary, to be normal, you have to sleep around and try before you buy. And it's just not, none oh, of it is crazy. Good. I see it as a return to, I mean, people think they're being original with this stuff, but it really is just a return to the practices of the pre-Christian era. Yeah. God you, bless you, you read, everyone. Have a good morning prayer. Did you, um, did you read Tom Holland's book, Dominion? Uh, that's on my pile of shame. It's on my bookshelf. It's on my list of books to read at some point. <laughs> so I don't, I don't agree with his later thesis, you know, after you, obviously I'm Catholic and I don't like his, his conclusions post-reformation, but watching, especially in those early chapters, when he talks about the ancient world and he's showing what these ancient cults were like, it's actually pretty wild the similarities to what we're seeing now where you have the priests of Sibylle wearing women's clothing cutting off their genitals oh, and yeah. like people would bring their children to go and see it's drag queen story hour brought back yeah. and you're seeing and, and what happens is, as you see Christianity spread you have priests going throughout the world preaching the gospel but also having uh, these processions with incense and war, like warding off evil spirits. And mm -hmm. Tom Holland doesn't pick up on that because he's writing it from a, a secular perspective, but you can really see that's what's happening as Christianity spreads. God's spirit covers the earth and you see these demons just getting uh, restrained by God. Yeah. And Jonathan, oh, Sorry. Go on. No, no. Yeah. Oh yeah. You're going to, uh, uh, what's his name? Jonathan Kahn, right? Yeah. Jonathan Kahn's book really touches on those, doesn't he? The old gods and they're returning the pagan gods. They are back. And we've, we see this in the end of civilizations that when we get debauched and degenerate and, and celebrate things that are to our own detriment, that's the downfall of a society. And we are at the downfall of Western society. This, you know, Western civilization has peaked. We are on the downward trend and it's only a matter of time now. Unfortunately, do you think we're just at the end of the West or do you think we're upon something apocalyptic? No, it's just the end of the West. If you look at if you look at uh, continents across the East, we see that Catholicism is still growing. We see that people are still going to church. If more now than ever, actually, uh, it's just over here. We're decadent. Uh, we've had it too good for too long, and we don't really have any major wars in living memory anymore. Uh, you know, we, I, I used to see this as, as a teacher. We used to get people in uh, Holocaust survivors to talk to the kids and give them a real experience. All of that is gone, um, and we just. We don't know what it means to to be to have to fight for what we believe in, which is maybe that's what maybe that's why we're going through this. And what do you think replaces the West after it's gone? I don't know, but I'm hoping that Christians will have a hand in it, and it will be something better. Because you know, I, I talk about this quite a bit, but another name for the West is Christendom, and if you take Christ out of Christendom, you don't have much left. And the foundation that the West was built upon was christian values so take those values away and it all just crumbles you can't have a house without foundations that's where we are now we've we've been living on just we've been running a car on an empty tank and it's coming yeah. to a stop yeah i don't I, that's why i don't like the term the west right it, the, the west it, it just has too many uh different connotations to it now where it's if if you look at what the old world order was would have been actual Christendom where you had, because the separation of church and state is actually what has led to the downfall of the West, where it, if you no longer have a, a culture that worships Christ as King, yeah. and that's what's happened by separating church and state completely. It's not, yeah. like, it, do, it doesn't mean you have to have a Catholic state, but separation of church and state. I mean, I, I would prefer it's a Catholic state, but <laughs> 
like when you separate religion completely and you separate Christianity from the yeah. state completely, now you no longer have a highest good that is God, like the, 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 the Christian God. So what is your highest good? Your highest good is now diversity. Your highest good is now inclusivity. And this is what's been devastating to all of us. Yeah, again, it comes down to a misunderstanding of separation of church and state. It meant that the church, the state cannot interfere in the church, but the church was still expected to be there. That was implied. And actually, it is the church's job to provide the moral values for the state. Because without them, like you say, they're just scrambling. It's all abstract. They're making up values, human rights. Human rights based on what? What do these rights mean? You know, in the UK now, we have the right to broadband. How is that a right? And rights used to come with responsibilities. Um, we don't see the responsibilities to our rights anymore. And again, rights used to be God-ordained. You know, we had the right to life. We have the right to, to private property. These things are scriptural. And without believing that they're God-ordained, they just come from man so if they come from man man can take them away yeah so you stopped doing um you stopped doing podcasts now huh yeah i'm having a break I've, i was saying to you before i've done half a dozen a week for nearly two years um it's it's great it has been good uh but i need a, a break from it i think i'm going to take a break from social media as well social media is just getting to me like just these comments people are so intense right now and not always in a constructive way i feel <laughs> I like i'm feeling as the, well that's why i wasn't even reading any of them well i don't mean these comments in particular there have been some lovely ones as well but it just means social media in general i need to take a step back from it all and just you know i've, I've tried to fight a good fight as best i can it seems it's not good enough for a lot of people so let them get up and let them stand up for a while and i'll take a back seat and just focus on my, my little parish well, I'll, I'll I'll tell you, like, you and I are having this conversation as close to face-to-face as we could, right? Yeah. And people are saying things in the comments that they would never say to somebody's face if they were in person, right? It, yeah. it, it, especially behind the cloak of anonymity, you will say awful things to a person that you would never say if you're face-to-face. People will tell me on this that I was a coward for not challenging you on thing. I just know no, I'm not going to change your mind on right. something. I know you're looking into these. and into these issues yourself and the only one who actually converts hearts is god anyway yeah right so Absolutely. it's uh, there's there's nothing i'm going to say to ch- so why would i want to have you want to have a converse uh an adversarial conversation i honestly just wanted to pick your brain a little bit and see what yeah. you michael what said you he should pray the rosary i do pray the rosary every day michael <laughs> sorry to butt in there <laughs> That's that's the irony of it, right? We will be held accountable for every word, folks. Type carefully. Rest judgment is a big deal. I agree yeah, with that. 100%. And I'm not judging other people on this, by the way. I'm judging myself because I feel I'm getting more irritable lately. I'm I'm not having as much patience. And, you know, I pray to God for patience, but he doesn't make us more patient. He just puts us in situations where we need to be more patient. Um, and that's where I feel like my online presence is at the moment. So I, I just, I'm zooming out of it all. So you're going to take a little bit of a break. And then do you have any plans to maybe step back into the into public ministry again or you just you think you're done with that no i don't know we'll see we'll see um i'm in london for another 6 months and then i'm moving i don't know where i'm moving to so i'm praying and discerning through that at the moment so if you could keep me in your prayers i'd appreciate that i'm trying to find where god is calling me to be next and that might mean more media ministry it might mean no media ministry it might mean just um a, a full-time parish somewhere I do know that I no longer feel called to be in London because I've hated London for years, but I've always felt called to be here. I've felt I've needed to be here. I no longer feel that. Um, so I'll be leaving London. I'm just trying to figure out where now. Hey, what do you think of um, Marian apparitions? Have you ever looked into any Marian apparitions? Have you? Have- yeah, I used to go on pilgrimage to Walsingham every year. So Our Lady Richeldis had an apparition to rebuild the Holy House. And so we, we go on pilgrimage to the Holy House and, and pray there. Uh, but I'd love to get out to Medjugorje at some point. I'm I'm trying to make it happen because I think it's, it, I know, again, your audience might have split views on that, but I think <laughs> if, if there are current apparitions, it would be wonderful to to encounter that. To, to my, parents went to, my, my parents went to Medjugorje back in the uh, 90s and my my father went there as an atheist and he came back believing the faith and he came back a Catholic. Uh, my mother, uh, so I had three siblings at the time when my parents went, my mother goes while she's there, she gets convicted to no longer use artificial birth control, comes home. And there's eight years between my brother, Mikey, my brother, Joey, and then my mom has five kids. 
in the span of seven years. So I have eight siblings now and whatever your opinions on Medjugorje are, if it wasn't for Medjugorje, five of my siblings would not exist. (laughs) That is a wonderful testimony. Yeah. So I, I, I've one of my brothers, my youngest brother, I actually talked to him and I'm like, look, I'm like, if it wasn't for our lady, you don't exist. And it had, had to do with his conversion, like him coming back to the church. I'm like, you, you need to at least consider the story because if it wasn't for Mary, you don't exist, you know? Yes. So it wound up leading to his conversion and him coming back to mass and stuff. So, but, um, uh, Calvin, I appreciate you coming on, man. I know you're, I know you're a busy guy. I, 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 um, I pray for the future of the church in general. I, you know, if people are uncomfortable with my approach to this interview, I just wanted to have a conversation with Calvin. Robinson. You did great, mate. Yeah. Thank you. You did great. Don't listen to the haters. The haters are always going to hate. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly had to get to that point doing this show because you get, you never make it, you'll never make everybody happy. Yeah. And I refuse to be audience captured. Yeah. Right. So I'm not going to do things based on what the audience wants me to do. So yeah. I've, We've kind of uh, never been an adversarial show. I'm not going to have somebody on and fight with them unless it's set up in pre, you know, beforehand in that, hey, we're going to have a conversation and argue this topic. But for the most part, I just want to get on and have a conversation with other Christians and see if uh, if there's any any commonalities we have. And just, you know, we got to rebuild Christian society after this whole thing comes down, which unless it's about co-sleeping. I think that's a great attitude because. You know, I, I prune my audience at times as well, and because I think if you if you fall into that trap of chasing numbers and worrying what your audience thinks, you say what you think they want to hear, and of course we shouldn't be doing that. We should be proclaiming the truth, and the truth naturally attracts people anyway. So, yeah, yeah I'm with you, brother. Focus on the truth. All right, I'm going to let you go now, guys. Okay, so what I have coming up, um, Thursday night, Rob and I are going to have Nick Cavazos on. Then Saturday, we have Father Maudsley coming on. That Father Maudsley show is going to be mainly on locals because we're going to be discussing a sensitive topic, the conversion of the people of the Old Covenant at the end of the time. At the end of time. Um, and then we have Brian Holdsworth coming up the week after. we got a lot of big shows coming up, so guys, please like, subscribe. Go check out our locals, and we have a few things coming up on that. Uh, Calvin, you have anything you want to promote before we go? I don't know, but if people could hold me in, my, in their prayers, that would be fantastic, and I'll be praying for you guys too. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much for coming on, Calvin. Um, wait, now I have to figure out. Rob, are you, are you in there?